0: Good singing. Good singing. Like you believe it. I love it. Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to page 786. It's the Bible for you in the pew. That's Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk is uh, one of the minor prophets. We've been studying these shorter prophets that... um, are several hundred years before the birth of Christ. We've been in Habakkuk for a while, there's only three chapters, but a lot, there's a lot here, it's a unique book. It's a, it's a book in which the prophets, the, the, the prophecy is mostly a conversation between the Lord and his prophet. And he's complaining, Habakkuk has taught us how to express our complaints, our doubts, our fears, To the Lord when he disappoints us. You may remember that uh, this is about 600 years before the birth of Christ and the Assyrians are a geopolitical threat and, and Habakkuk's complaining about that. He's also complained for sure about the need for revival of the church in Judah and God says to Habakkuk, I've heard your prayers, I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to send a nation called the Babylonians against the Assyrians. They're going to put them in their place. And by the way, I'm also going to revive the church. I'm going to take the church of Judah into captivity for about 70 years. I'll discipline them and, and, uh, and they will be purified and prepared to be the line through which my Messiah has come. Now, to, keep that, uh, to appreciate that, imagine that you are complaining to the Lord and you're crying out to him, revive your church, O oh Lord, revive your church in America. And uh, you say, uh, Lord, this uh, North Korean threat, this, this dictator is, is uh, working uh, havoc in our geopolitical system, this North Korean threat. When are you going to set us free from that? And the Lord says, no problem. I'm going to send Iran. I'm going to take down North Korea. And then, by the way, I'm also going to take the American Americans into captivity for 70 years. And that will revive the church, too. Now, in the first service, which is a little more expressive than this quiet service, when I said that in the first service, I heard this, oh, suddenly becomes existential, doesn't it? We we can patronize Habakkuk and say, that little prophet, why would he get so upset when God didn't tell him what he wanted to hear? But there are oftentimes in our lives and the providence we experience that God isn't doing what we want him to do. Do we trust him? How do we get through that? Habakkuk shows us, or God shows us through Habakkuk, the nature of overcoming faith. And I want you to look at it as we begin reading in verse 20, the last verse of Habakkuk chapter two, and then through verse 16 of chapter three. The Lord is in his holy temple Let all the earth keep silence before him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan and affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Brothers, and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you lift up our heads to look what, from what immediately confronts us to your throne on high and make us with Jesus to be more than conquerors for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, Amen. <clears throat> Jackie and I were newly weds. We decided impulsively one late evening or uh, after supper one evening that we would take a trip from St. Louis. To my parents' house in Corinth, Mississippi, we left at night and jumped in our little Ford Festiva and took on the blackness of the night. There was no moon, there were no stars, and we came into the bootheel, and as you know that part of the country, bootheel of Missouri, or depending on where you are in Missouri, we came into the bootheel and it was, the, the the fog was as thick as pea soup, as they say. We could barely see a thing. It's frightening actually. We were looking for an exit. Couldn't see in front of us, couldn't see to the side behind us. Finally a, a semi, a eighteen wheeler came onto the highway. We saw his taillights and by getting close enough to him to see those tail lights we could follow him and find out where the road was. There were times, however, when the tail lights would disappear, we were lost in the fog, and I would have to open the passenger the, the the driver's side door and look at the center line of the highway to make sure I was on the right side. You mean you catch the taillights again or look up and catch the taillights and and I was constantly checking the rearview mirror, too, because some people were driving as if they had night vision eyeballs. And uh, they were trying to pass us and so forth. We were wondering if we could get it rammed from behind. But there was another benefit looking behind. It would tell us we'd, we've made some progress. Maybe we're going to make it to an exit. We finally made it to the Dyersburg exit where we spent the night between St. Louis and Corinth, Mississippi. You may feel like you're in a, a metaphorical fog. Life is so obscure, so uncertain, you can't see what's in front of you, can't find the center line. You don't know where to go. Maybe it's a international threat. Maybe it's something very private in your life. Maybe it's something in your neighborhood or your city. It's a fog. And you're wondering, how am I gonna go on from here? I don't know where to go. I'm terrified, I'm immobilized, I'm paralyzed by unbelief. Or maybe you don't know Christ at all and you're saying, how does anyone live in this world? Habakkuk faced all those questions and Habakkuk shows us the necessity of keeping your head on a swivel like I had to that night and driving in that fog. Of looking up to see the Lord and looking in to see yourself relative to the Lord and looking back to remember what the Lord has done thus far. That occurs in the context of your private and public worship. Let me show you how that unfolds in this passage beginning in verse verse 20 and verse one of chapter three, Habakkuk, shows us the need to look up when we're in the midst of a fog a fog of unbelief we need to look up to see the lord sounds so sunday schoolish doesn't it but look what habakkuk does the lord is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silence before him in a prayer verse 1 of habakkuk this started with habakkuk's private prayers. Habakkuk, uh, you know, after he poured out his complaint to the Lord, remember he, he told the Lord, you are totally wrong on this one. You're, you're unjust if you let the Babylonians conquer us. And then after he had made his complaint, he sat silently and waited for the Lord's answer. The Lord answered him as we looked at over the last couple of weeks. And now his response is the Lord is in his holy temple. By that private prayer, he has gotten the Lord back in front of his eyes instead of the enemy that was right in front of him. His private prayer. This private prayer is not just talking to the Lord all the time, telling him what to do, telling him how you feel. It is certainly that. But Habakkuk shows us it is eventually being silent and listening to him speak. Being silent or still and waiting for him to remind you he is God. Be still, the psalmist says. Be still and know that I am God. There's a, a book written by an, an, anonymously by a Cartesian monk in the 14th century. Uh, monk in in um, England. It's been a, a book about prayer has been helpful to me called the cloud of unknowing and that monk says in his book about prayer lift up your heart to God with a humble impulse of love and have him as your aim not any of his goods take care that you avoid thinking of anything but himself so there is nothing for your reason or your will to work on except himself himself be still and know that I am God. I had a s- seminary, when I was teaching seminary in St. Louis, I had a student who I'd known since he was in college. He was a very special friend. I, I loved him. I thought a lot about him, but uh, he had this uh, one problem. He never quit talking. He talked all the time. And one time he came into the library, and uh, we had a very godly librarian, and uh, he asked this man, uh, he said, uh, you know, I need help with my prayer life. What, what have you found to be helpful in your prayer life? And uh, my colleague very wisely, very tenderly said, you know, the first thing I find is necessary in prayer is, is to be quiet. It is to listen, and not always speak. Really, he said, really? No words? No words, you, uh, just, just be quiet. Listen, yeah, try it, try it. You know how we often pray. Lord, what in the world are you doing? Give me this, give me that, make this happen, make that happen. Habakkuk poured out his whole heart to God. There's, God welcomes that, but eventually it's time to be quiet and get the Lord in front of you to be still and know that I am God. God. There's another monk uh, predated this Cartusian monk, uh, uh, Benedict of Nursia, who's a founder of Western monasticism, he, and uh, he, he had this problem. The, the whole world was being taken over by unbelievers, and he's trying to encourage his pastors and trying to train them how they're going to keep their eyes on the Lord and not be rattled by everything that's happening around them, how they're going to preserve the faith. And so one of his primary strategies was to to get them praying throughout the day, praying, as he put it, praying the hours, not praying for an hour all through the day, but praying On the hours. And he had a name for a Latin name for each one of them. But it it was something like this. The first hour, prime, is pray for the day ahead. Just a couple of moments, listen, pray. And then the, the second hour, or lauds, is give him praise. Just praise him. Thank him. And then two, three, and four three, four, and five. We're, we're basically prayers through the through the middle of the day. Interrupt your work with prayer. Stop and pray. Stop and listen. At the end of the day, vespers pray in the evening. Thank the Lord for his help. Of confess your sins. And then he had a seventh one. It's in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. We call it vigil. Pray. It's a really helpful thing. You You may... Uh, do it this way. You could put reminders in your phone just six times. Don't put one in the middle of the, the night if you don't need it. But uh, maybe six, six reminders in your phone that will stop you and say, pray now. Get the Lord in front of you. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. It'll always be an interruption. It'll always say, not now. I'm busy. It's part of the problem. Be still. Know that I am God. Get the Lord in front of you. But, but Habakkuk also shows this. It's not only important privately to pray. Get the Lord in front of us. It's essential publicly. Now, Where do I get that? Verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. And then he sets out his prayer in the, the rest of chapter 3. What is Shigianoth? We're not exactly... Sure, what it was, but we 're pretty sure that it 's a hymn tune the, the following is a prayer that he says that i that I prayed, but i 've set it to music. I want you to sing it it 's kind of a novel thing isn 't it in a, the American church? Can you imagine singing this kind of this kind of hymn? Or can you imagine singing the earlier part of Habakkuk well it was the Old Testament, even the New Testament practice to sing the psalms, and most of the psalms are laments and complaints, lots of plenty of praise too. But they're very honest. You can get the impression, can't you, in the American church sometime that, that, uh, that worship is always to be happy, clappy. Its, "I'm so happy. Here's the reason why Jesus took my burden all away. Hey. But well, we don't always feel like that. Sometimes we need a hymn like this, none other lamb, none other name. One of those stanzas is, my faith burns low, my heart burns low. Love's fire thou art, however cold I be. By its deep wonder of want and woe, my heart cries out to thee. We need those kinds of prayers. A friend of mine has a lecture in his seminary classes called, What in the World Do Miserable Christians Sing? And uh, he means by that, when you're miserable and you're in worship, what is there to sing? We need a combination of sweet and strong hymns and songs. We need a combination of happy, joyful, and mournful laments. Isn't it, a, isn't it amazing, isn't it embarrassing that lament has become such an unpopular word in the American church? It's some kind of woke thing, people say. And lament comes from the Bible. We pour out our, our, our woes, our prayers, our heart needs, and we do it together. And together then we don't feel alone and we have this confirmation that we're in this together and the Lord is in his holy temple. And we wait in silence on him and we're still before him because he is in his holy temple on the throne. Habakkuk is ultimately looking at Jesus. He, he names him as the anointed later on. In the book of Revelation that we, that we studied last year, the, the, the whole book of Revelation is oriented around the throne in the middle of it. The whole thing flows out from the throne. All of the the dragons and the terrifying serpents and so forth, they're all put in perspective as the Christian is urged to look at Jesus Christ on his throne. And so Habakkuk says, when I finally shut my mouth and I listened and I turned my eyes upward and I joined my voice with other believers, I realized Jesus, the Messiah, is on his throne. I'm not alone. He is working out his purposes, not just in me, but in the whole of the family of God. Look up. Look up. And when you look up, look in. Look in. You notice Habakkuk uh, the change that comes over him, verse 2 and verse 16, they frame the chapter. Oh, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, oh, Lord, I do fear. I mean, I respect it. I am, I'm amazed by it. I'm in awe of it in the midst of the years. And view of that work now that I've seen you on your throne again. In the midst of the years, please bring it back. Revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember Mercy, And then look how he responds, verse 16, as he thinks about God's mighty acts through history. thinks about the Exodus and and the judges and and, uh, the other mighty acts of redemption throughout redemptive history. In verse 16, he says, I hear all of this. Maybe he heard it from the voice of God. Maybe he read it in his Bible. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me yet I'll quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He finally sees himself in the right perspective. It is good. It is welcomed by God to make your complaint, to pour out your hearts to him. But there's a time when God finally says, enough, time to listen to me. John Calvin said that, or Augustine said that at the beginning of, Wisdom is to know oneself to be a sinner. See yourself in proper relationship with God. John Calvin said something similar. Wisdom, true wisdom is a true knowledge of yourself and of God. And then Calvin said, when you you become aware of God and who he is, yes, it will cause you to tremble. It'll put you in your place, but he will take you by the hand and lead you like a child to true wisdom. It's true wisdom begins with understanding who God is, but, but also that you are not God. Or as John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. It is essential if you're going to get through the fog. Not just to get the Lord before you, but to get yourself in right perspective relative to him and to realize I am not the Christ. Now, How do you know if you're acting like you're a Christ? Well, it looks like this. Somebody who is acting like, and you may be a Christian, but you're by default acting like your savior, like your messiah. Like it's up to you. When you're living that way, here's what you do. You set your your standards for what is acceptable. What What is it to be acceptable? What is it to be successful? What is it to be saved? You set a standard. And you either set that standard by your own, by your... With yourself as the standard bearer, that's when you're feeling good and you're confident, and, you're, and you, you, you're all caught up in yourself. That's you. You set the standard and say, "I'm really, I'm really at the top of the heap." You can also set the standard by saying, "The standard is all those other people, what the what the world tells me I should be," and then. The messianic delusion occurs this way by saying I've got to fix that. I've got to keep this up, this perfection that I see. I've got to keep this up. Or I've got to repair my defectiveness by making me like this standard. Here's the commonality. Jesus is not in the picture. I am not the Christ is important for you And me to remember every day. Christ is the only one who has set the standard for what it means to be acceptable in his sight. Christ is the only one who is the judge whose judgment matters. And Christ is the only one who has set the true standard. And that true standard is impossible to reach. There is nothing you can do to yourself to make yourself conform to that standard. So what is the hope? It is to give up trying to be the Christ and to say, you be my Christ. You make me what I am supposed to be. Forgive my sins. Start me on the path of total conformity to yourself. And whatever somebody else thinks about me, whatever the rest of the world says is wrong with me, and they promise some kind of salvation, through more money, through esteem, by a degree, by changing gender, by being more acceptable sexually, whatever it is, whatever the latest salvation and gospel is being offered by the world, and they say, you're not good enough. When you know that the only judge whose judgment matters in the universe has said, you are right by me, it doesn't matter what anybody else says about you. It doesn't even matter what you say about you. Habakkuk was saying, You've got to fix this, God, and I'm telling you what is right and wrong. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to be your own Christ. It's wearying, constantly disappointing, frustrating to be your own Savior, and it never works. Look in and see that you're not the Christ that he is, you'll become wise and you'll become calmer. That's what happened to Habakkuk. But the final thing is that you look back. Now, I need you to put your thinking cap on here because this is a, a matter of, of the Old Testament saints' spirituality that may take a while to get your mind around, but when you do, it'll be very helpful in your walking in the fog. The Old Testament saint, when they were operating in their strength, and they didn't always operate out of their strength. Well, when they were in a healthy way, they, they and they saw they had themselves in a fix, and there was there was no way forward, and there was no way of escape. They would look back, and they would look for a category of deliverance in the past that would that would fit the situation in the present, and those. Three categories that they tended to find, it seems to me, are these: they would look for an unprecedented deliverance; they would look for an unlikely victory; and they would look for undeserved mercy. Now, here's what Habakkuk is doing in this in this in this hymn that he writes. He's weaving together three songs. By past saints. And and all of them together represent God showing up. We call that a theophany in the Bible. God showing up. And whether God showed up like this in a vision to Habakkuk or where he just weaved it all together from the past revelation, God shows up. And Habakkuk takes, takes inspiration from three. Uh, leaders in the past, three situations in the past. Moses, the song of Moses, that's the unprecedented deliverance. And then he takes inspiration from Deborah. Deborah was an Old Testament judge and uh, there was a very unlikely victory that occurred under her hand. And then there's undeserved mercy and that's represented by the song of David. Now let me show you how it how it works out in practice. Let's take the first one, the Song of Moses about an unprecedented deliverance. It's, a, it's an allusion to that time when, when the, the, the Israelites are running away from the Egyptians and they're pinned against the Red Sea. The Red, Red Sea is, is uh, vastly in front of them. Their, their backs are against it and the Pharaoh and his armies are, are marching toward them. They're driving toward them in chariots and, and uh, there, there's no place to go. Now, if Moses had said, okay, we've got to look forward. We've got to look to the future. and We've got to figure this thing out. I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. So I've got to figure this thing out. What are we going to do in the future to save ourselves? I don't think it would have ever crossed Moses' mind. Hey, why don't we just split the sea? But what he could have done is looked back and he said, have there been unprecedented deliverances in the past? Oh, yeah. God delivered Abraham from Abimelech and, and then it, it, there wasn't a, a, an heir of Abraham. And, and so God, unprecedented, brought a child of his old age named Isaac. God's in the business of doing things that have never been imagined or envisioned before. God save us. And God split the sea. What about the unlikely victory? That's the song of Deborah. Deborah was a woman judge. In those days, in the Middle Eastern world, you think a woman can't do anything. A woman can't be our leader. How desperate are those Israelites that they had to turn to a woman? And so the Canaanites were going to take advantage of them. And they were going to, and uh, uh, under Jabin, they were going to run over them. And he, he sent his, his, uh, his, his chief military leader, Sisera, with his chariots and so forth, against Deborah and the ragtag crew of the Israelites. Now, what would, what would Deborah imagine? She couldn't have imagined what actually happened. But if she looked back... She could have seen, you know, back in Moses' day, God took out the chariots. And, and, and back in Abraham's day, he, he took out five nations that were against the nation of God. So, Lord, we need an unlikely victory. I can't imagine how that's going to be. And God's that's his specialty. So how about this? How about the... How about the chariot runs into mud? Sisera gets out of it. He runs. He walks, and uh, some woman named Jael, uh, 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 a, um, an at-home mother, uh, just a homemaker, says, come on into my tent. You want some water? Yeah. How about some warm milk? How about a cookie? How about a pacifier, a warm blanket? And he, he curls up right really nice, and she takes a tent peg and drives it right through his skull. It's one of the best stories in the Bible. Deborah could have never imagined that, an unlikely victory. And the and the people running around said, What what happened? How did this happen? JL, the homemaker, says, Come into my tent, I'll show you the guy. He's pinned to the ground. And what about undeserved mercy? David experienced all three of these categories in his life. Unprecedented deliverance. He killed a bear and a lion and a and a giant. Unlikely victory. He did it with his bare hands and with a slingshot. What about undeserved mercy? Do I really have to say it? That he committed adultery and killed Bathsheba's husband to cover it up? And yet God preserved him. Not because he deserved it but because he has this greater task, this greater mission of bringing forth the anointed, the Lord Jesus, through the line of David. So what is it in your life that represents the fog? Would an unprecedented victory, unprecedented deliverance, an unlikely victory, undeserved mercy, would any of that help you out? Of course. And God will provide it. When you look at him, quit being the Christ. Not because you deserve it, but because he's got a mission called to praise of his glorious grace. Now this is the part of the sermon where you expect me to give you one of those super inspiring stories about how somebody went through a tough time and everything worked out so that they lived happily ever after. But I like to keep it more real than that. Because the truth is that the Lord takes us through many dangers, trials, and snares in order to prove that his gospel His gracious grip on us is more determined and more certain than any circumstantial faith. The real proof of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of his having you in his grip, is his taking you through those times of suffering and disappointment and trial and keeping with your eyes on him, not losing your faith. But persevering. I could dip into my letter file and and pluck out any almost any one of them and give you a testimony of the of the Lord doing this for his people. <clears throat> but I picked this one this week. A young girl who wrote me many years ago, and she had experienced something in her life as one of the Worst and darkest things I've, I've ever seen someone go through. And it was one of many things in her life. And She wrote me this. You see if you don't hear Habakkuk in this letter. Looking up, getting God in front of you. Looking in and saying, I am not the Christ. And looking back and saying, the one who has faithfully led me thus far will Get me home. I'm just angry. Not angry at any one person, but angry at the injustice in the world. I really want to hike to the top of a mountain and scream into the clouds, telling the world that I need a break from pain. I would tell God that I have had it with love and life, and I just want to stop having to repair myself. I have been broken and now I have deep, gross, hard to conquer scars and walls within me. I have a long, long journey to complete healing before me and I am daunted by it. But I live with a good loving family, meaning not just her biological family but her, her church family. I live with a good loving family It constantly reminds me I am worth more than I can comprehend. They're very good to me and I'm daily shocked by their thoughtfulness. This disappointment, it's the ending of a chapter, not a book, right? I also feel terribly selfish for thinking these things instead of looking forward to all the joy that I know will come. On that note, Thank you for your sermon on Sunday about Jesus, our faithful redeemer. I've been watching online. It's not the same as being there, but it's the next best thing. Pray for us, would you? Things will get better. I am sure. How do you say something like that? Only when Christ is fully before your vision on his throne. And you remember, I am not the Christ. And you look back and say, the one who has never yet failed his people in his progress toward bringing all things to the praise of his glorious grace, he has not abandoned me now and he will get me home with joy. Let's pray together, <clears throat> oh Lord Jesus. We pray for ourselves and ask that you would uh, relieve us of the delusion of thinking that we are the Christ. We pray, O oh Lord would shake us down into our bones at the realization that the Lord Christ, the roaring lion, the lamb who was slain is on the throne and ruling and reigning until he brings all things under his feet. The one who is faithful is the one who has called us. He's never yet left or abandoned his people. And he will not abandon us now, but take us forward until every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen.